0: Hello campus cronies! Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Turner, full-time college administrator, part-time college professor, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five. In the spring of 2008, Brittany Zimmerman, a junior at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, arrived home to her off-campus apartment after class. On her way back home at around noon, she tried calling her mother at work since the two talked every single day, sometimes even multiple times a day, but her mother was away from her desk at that specific time and the phone wasn't equipped with voicemail, so Brittany didn't leave a message. However, as Brittany hung up the phone and made her way inside, an intruder wasn't far behind her. The next call Brittany made was to 911 at 1220 p.m., but the call was dropped and authorities were never sent to her residence to help. By the time Brittany's fiance arrived home at 1pm, it was too late. Brittany had been killed by the intruder. Her case, though never officially labeled as cold, was dragged out for nearly 15 years before her killer was finally put away. This episode is titled, Murder in Madison. So without further ado, let's get started. On April 2, 2008, 21-year-old Brittany Zimmerman spent the morning on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison attending classes. She was a junior studying medical microbiology and immunology. That day before she left campus, she stopped by a professor's office to discuss the possibility of starting a charity to help children experiencing homelessness. You see, Brittany had a big heart and wanted to help as many people as she possibly could. She even hoped to become a doctor, and she dreamed of one day working for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Brittany also loved animals, and I can totally relate to her because she had three pet cats that she loved and doted on like they were her own children. And I'm the same way with my three dogs. (laughs) Anyway, Brittany was so fascinated by animals that on April 2nd, on her way home from campus, she even stopped to snap a few pictures of some bunnies. Brittany lived in an apartment on West Doty Street with her high school sweetheart and fiancé, Jordan Gonnering. So, also on her way home, Brittany made two phone calls. First, she returned a call from her fiancé's sister in which she left her a short, cheery message. Then, at 11.57 a.m., Brittany tried calling her mom at work because the two talked every day, often multiple times a day. But at this particular time, Brittany's mom, Jean Zimmerman, just happened to be away from her desk when Brittany called, and because the office phone wasn't equipped with voicemail, Brittany didn't leave a message. Still, when Jean got back to her desk and noticed a missed call from Brittany's number, she took a mental note to call Brittany back, which she planned to do around 3 p.m. that day after she got off work. Instead, though, when Jean got home and pulled into her driveway, She was met by police officers who were waiting inside with Jean's husband, Kevin. They were there to give them the news that no parents ever want to hear. That their daughter had been brutally murdered. You see, not long after Brittany got home, which was around noon, right about the time she was calling her mom at work, a man broke into Brittany's apartment. At the time, for completely unknown reasons. When Brittany realized someone was inside her apartment and it wasn't Jordan, she tried calling 911 from her cell phone at 12.20 p.m. According to an article in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel by Kelly Meyerhofer, one can audibly hear the sounds of a struggle and a female screaming on the 911 call. But the Dane County operator, a woman by the name of Rita Gagan, said she did not hear anything that registered as an emergency, so police were not dispatched to the scene and by this time, it was too late. The man, the intruder, heard Brittany trying to call police and he snapped. He stabbed her numerous times, primarily in the heart, and strangled her. Afterward, he fled out of there, leaving Brittany to bleed out and succumb to her injuries. 48 minutes later, Brittany's fiance, Jordan, arrived to their apartment to find the outside security door of the building broken and the door to their specific unit unlocked. Wisc TV, a CBS affiliate in Madison, reported that when Jordan walked inside, he saw Brittany lying on the floor, covered in blood and unresponsive. Shocked and mortified, and absolutely beside himself, Jordan called 911 at around 1:08 p.m. and reported that his fiance had been shot. Because y'all, that's how many times she had been stabbed. It caused her to bleed so profusely that Jordan thought she had been shot in the chest. In the moment, he was completely unaware that she had actually been repeatedly stabbed and strangled. One of the detectives who arrived to the scene, Marion Morgan, found Jordan crying and trembling in shock. Completely dumbfounded and searching for answers, Jordan told the detective, quote, she was the nicest person ever. Who would do this? End quote. Brittany was officially pronounced dead at 1.34 p.m. on April 2nd, 2008. The Wisconsin State Journal reported that an autopsy revealed she died from quote-unquote complex homicidal violence, including multiple stab wounds and strangulation. She had also been beaten, and more than half of the knife wounds were inflicted to her heart. The knife used was two to five inches long and three-quarters of an inch wide, and to this day, according to source materials, that weapon has never been found. When Brittany's mother found out about everything that had happened that day, you can only imagine the sheer pain and shock she felt, especially realizing that she might have been on the phone with Brittany during the whole attack. Brittany's mom, Jean, told the Wisconsin State Journal, quote, I probably would have been on the phone with her when this happened. You feel so guilty not being there for her. If only I had been on the phone, I could have called 911, end quote. Madison police quickly got to work on the case, starting with processing the scene for any potential evidence. Obviously, they needed to figure out, one, who killed Brittany, and two, why they would even do such a terrible, horrific thing to such an innocent, kind person. From the beginning, police theorized that it was likely a stranger, especially after speaking to Brittany's family and friends and learning all about who she was. Brittany's mom said, quote, she truly was someone who wanted to help people. She never disappointed us. She never got in trouble. She never was a risk taker. Kevin and I said, how did we get her?" End quote. Like literally nobody they spoke to stuck out on their radar. Nobody had a motive or a means or an opportunity to so brutally and heartlessly take her life. Now police did look at Jordan for a hot minute because I mean, he was the fiance and you know, you always start there, but he was quickly ruled out and before long, the investigation kind of stalled. That is, until they started getting reports of a man who had been seen on April 2nd. The man had been panhandling and asking for money from several different strangers in the neighborhood. More specifically, witnesses saw this man on three different streets, Wilson Street, Bedford Street, and finally, West Doty Street, where Brittany's and Jordan's apartment was. According to at least four witnesses who police interviewed, In the span of about 50 minutes, starting at around 1130 AM on April 2nd, 2008, this man they were talking about approached asking for $40 or a ride to his house on the west side of town. He would tell them that he and his wife needed money to fix a flat tire and his car was at a nearby mechanic. One woman said the man knocked and entered her home without permission before asking her for money and another neighbor was actually able to identify the man because the man had solicited $20 from him to fix a flat, and in return, or as collateral, I guess, the man left the neighbor his Department of Corrections card, like his former prison ID card. (laughs) What? Oh, and he never came back to get it. Anyway, the ID card had the name David A. Call listed on it, so police pulled information about the guy And y'all, the dude had a criminal rap sheet a mile long, dating back to at least 1991. Then they took his photo around to show the different witnesses who saw him in the neighborhood that day, and they all identified Call as the man they saw and encountered. So Call became their primary suspect, though they weren't completely dismissing other potential suspects either. After identifying Call, though, investigators brought him in for questioning, and he admitted to asking people for money that day. He even admitted to them that he was actually high and he was looking for money to buy drugs, specifically crack cocaine, rather than fix a flat tire. However, he denied going into any homes or hurting anyone. During this first interview, police noticed that Call did have several small cuts on his hands, which sent up some red flags. Could they be wounds inflicted by Brittany as she was attempting to defend herself against him? So police noted that almost immediately then a few days later on april 7th they brought him in for a second interview and during that interview Cole told investigators that he had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia a few years prior but he was off his medication he also divulged to them that he had been released from prison about four months prior and he said he had been living in a halfway house for about a month before finally moving into his own apartment on franklin street which police noted was only about a mile away from Brittany's apartment on West Doty Street. WMTV NBC 15 reported that Call was interviewed by police and investigators on at least six different occasions over the years, and each time his story changed slightly, like he would change specific details or add more details to his story. For example, a few weeks later on April 18, 2008, investigators spoke to Call for a third time. This time, Call told them that he and a friend, a woman named Dawn, were going around knocking on all the doors in the neighborhood, but he said they had not forced their way into any homes or apartments on April 2nd. Then, during this interview, Call even told police that Brittany invited him into her home and offered him a soda, something they definitely could not verify or corroborate. Call gave his fourth interview to police in July of 2008 while he was an inmate at the Fox Lake Correctional Institution for an unrelated incident. Like I said, long rap sheet. And once again, he said he was with a woman named Dawn, but this time he said he was with two other men as well, two white men specifically, and they were in the area on April 2nd to solicit money to purchase crack cocaine. This time though, one of the detectives point blank asked call, were you at Brittany Zimmerman's apartment that day? and Call actually admitted that it was likely since they had knocked on nearly every other door on West Doty Street. But he also said that he probably wouldn't remember if anyone answered the door or not, but he did express concern that his fingerprints might be on her doorbell, you know, since he likely stopped at Brittany's apartment. So here's my question. How can you go from, oh, Brittany invited me in for a soda, to, I don't remember if I stopped at her house or not, but probably so since, you know, I was knocking on all the doors. It's just super sketchy, and police thought the same. During this time though, as they were interviewing and re-interviewing Call, police were actually contacted by another inmate at Fox Lake Correction Institution toward the end of 2008. The inmate, whose name has never been revealed, told police that Call confessed to him to breaking into Brittany's apartment and choking her. Call even told this guy that he was worried his fingerprints might be on her throat but he said, Call never admitted to him that he actually killed Brittany. Now I do want to point out that at the crime scene, detectives did collect DNA. And although they had it on file and they were saving it for testing, more sophisticated advanced testing wasn't yet available in 2008, at least not what we know it to be today in 2023. So at this point, their hands were tied as far as actually arresting Call because they just didn't have enough physical evidence to make a solid case. Therefore, investigators had no other choice but to look into other potential suspects as well. Which is what they should do, right? According to an article in the Wisconsin State Journal, police took DNA samples from three other unhoused males in April of 2008. But when they were finally able to test the DNA, all three individuals were cleared. None of the DNA from the crime scene matched theirs. After this, investigators knew Call was most likely the one responsible for killing Brittany and thus began a 14-year-long investigation before Call would ultimately be brought to justice. And I know what you're thinking, if they had DNA from the crime scene, why didn't they just get a warrant for Call's DNA and officially charge him, you know, like test it, compare it, charge him, case closed? Well, apparently it was more complicated than that so allow me to explain, or I should say explain the best as I can, because a part of me doesn't really even understand why it took so damn long. But let's start with the 911 call from Brittany that was ultimately dropped, meaning no first responders were dispatched to help Brittany until it was far too late. Uh, yeah, that caused all sorts of controversy, rightfully so, which pretty much started this case off on the wrong foot from square one. So, when Brittany called 911 from her apartment at 12.20pm on April 2nd, the dispatcher on the other end of the line said she did not hear anything that registered as an emergency, so the call was ultimately disconnected. However, according to the reporting of Sandy Colin for the Wisconsin State Journal in 2008, the emergency operator actually mishandled the call which caused officials to later give detectives incorrect information about the entire case, which also significantly delayed police response. And according to an official search warrant obtained by the Wisconsin State Journal in 2020, police verified the mishandling of the 911 call. According to the warrant, Madison Police Detective Marion Morgan described the call by saying, quote, the disconnect started with the sound of a woman screaming and the line remains active and open picking up the background sounds of a struggle for a short period of time end quote. so police and authorities acknowledged that there was a problem with the call being dropped in colin's 2008 article for the wisconsin state journal she reported that the county officials ordered a mandatory audit of the 911 center staffing and practices But that report was never officially released to the public, at least not that I could find. And that brings me to the next thing in the case that caused a lot of controversy. You see, nearly every piece of information, every detail about the investigation and Brittany's case, was sealed off from the public and police were holding on tight to most of the information associated with the case. That is, until 2020, when six search warrants were unsealed and the public was given their first glimpse of long-held secrets of the Madison Police Department regarding Brittany's case. Now, I'm sure most of you know that if a case is cold or, or solved, then usually one is able to access information about it pretty easily, as in police will provide documentation, usually through an open records request. However, if a case is open and active, most of the time information is not readily available what is available is whatever police and investigators decide to make public in effort to solve the case so madison police captain dan nail said britney's case was never classified as a cold case because they always had at least one investigator working it since her death in 2008 so that's why all the information and documentation was sealed for so long Anyway, I'm not sure what happened regarding the 911 call center audit, but according to an article in the Kenosha News, county officials said they cannot explain what happened with Brittany's call, and they insist that they can find no indication of equipment failures. Regardless, the revelations that perhaps Brittany could have been saved if only the 911 call had been handled correctly, will they still haunt Brittany's parents. Jean Zimmerman said, quote, she did everything right and nobody helped End quote. Kevin and Gene Zimmerman ended up suing the county over the mishandling of the 911 call, but they settled the suit for $5,000, all of which went to the reward fund to help find their daughter's killer. Okay, so now that we have that information out there, let's continue with the timeline of how they finally did catch Call and charge him with Brittany's murder, because spoiler alert, he's the guy. Now remember, I said police interviewed Call a total of six times, But we left off after their fourth interview, which occurred in 2008. The fifth interview with Call didn't happen until three years later in 2011. During that interview, detectives told Call that they actually had DNA evidence that placed him inside Brittany's home. Now, from what I gather, they didn't actually have a DNA match just yet. Like, basically, they were just super confident that Call was the culprit, so they were bluffing to try to hook him into a confession. Anyway, The confession didn't happen, but Call once again changed his story. He said he didn't know how that could have happened unless he burglarized her home earlier that day or at some point prior to that day. Also during this interview, Call said he and two men were going around the neighborhood burglarizing homes, and Call asked police where his DNA was found. They responded by saying it was on an item that belonged to Brittany. But once again, Call suddenly remembered a new detail. He recalled that he shook hands with several people that day on April 2nd, and he even gave one woman a hug. A couple years later in 2014, detectives spoke with Cole's mother whom he would talk to and confide in often. His mother shared that Call told her that Brittany had given him money and a beer. So detectives questioned Call for the sixth and final time in 2014. And again, his story changed. This time, he told detectives that he believed two black men and his female friend, Dawn, committed the murder, which completely differed from his other accounts. In the other interviews, he described the two men he was with as white, with one of them sporting a ponytail and a tongue ring. Then, in the sixth interview, they asked Call if Brittany had ever offered or given him a beer, you know, as he told his mother. And his response was, quote, I can't remember. I was in so many houses. I was so fucked up. End quote um okay so you can't remember but then you can remember all this stuff clearly yeah his story was just not adding up as you can see in december of 2014 a search warrant revealed that a dna match was finally and officially made according to wisc tv a cbs affiliate in madison dna found on britney's shirt sleeve matched the dna of call who was obviously a convicted offender and already in codis the fbi dna database then a week after the dna hit police spoke with a man who claimed he used to be a good friend of Call's. The man, Andrew Scholes, was an inmate in prison in West Virginia, and he told police that Call, quote unquote, broke down in tears and confessed to killing Brittany. So Madison police finally felt like they were getting somewhere and the case was finally moving ahead at full steam. But that quickly fizzled out when they were forced to discount Scholes' information. You see, they became skeptical of Andrew Scholes and his reliability after he tried to use the information he had about Call in exchange for an early release from prison or a pardon for his past crimes. Essentially, Scholes told police that he wouldn't provide any other details about what he knew unless they agreed to the conditions he was asking for. Obviously, for numerous reasons, police passed him up on his offer. The then-police chief, Mike Koval, explained, quote, As officers of the court, we are always concerned and sensitive to this, and as much as we want to find killers, we don't want to enable perjury or allow someone worried about their own skin to use or manipulate an investigation." And honestly, even if they wanted to further consider Scholes' conditions or requests, they couldn't because in a bizarre twist of fate, Scholes was actually killed in a motorcycle crash in August of 2017. The next movement in the case didn't come until February of 2016 when Brittany's family announced that investigators found a DNA match in the case. At the time, they didn't identify Call, however, because no charges had officially been filed yet. Police Chief Koval said they just didn't have enough evidence to make an arrest. They did talk to another individual, though, who provided them with some information that strengthened their case against Call. So. Also, in February of 2016, police talked to a man who lived in the halfway house with Call. The man explained that the two of them had gotten into a fight, and Call threatened him by saying, quote, I'll do you like I did her. End quote. At this point, though, investigators still needed more information and more evidence to make a solid case against him. Chief Koval explained this rationale further, saying, quote, If I had probable cause based on the totality of the evidence I had, don't you think I would have made an arrest? End quote. He went on to say that Brittany's case actually prompted change in the way the Madison Police Department handled their investigations, especially after he watched the longtime sole detective on the case break down in his office. Koval said, quote, In 30 minutes, this man, this hulking shadow of a man, was reduced to tears. He was convulsing at one point, and then I was convulsing, and I realized we can't continue to assign cases this way, End quote. And after this, from 2018 on, Koval ensured that multiple investigators, a team of detectives, worked Brittany's case collectively. And it wasn't until February of 2020 that the biggest break in the case came through, Finally. A criminal complaint revealed that new DNA testing found Call's DNA on Britney's jeans she was wearing nearly 12 years earlier, the day she was murdered. Apparently, according to investigators, the DNA collected at the crime scene had been tested and it had always come back inconclusive until February 12, 2020, when it came back as a solid match. The following month, on March 20th, 2020, police announced the official arrest of David Call for the murder of Brittany Zimmerman. Regarding the time it took to officially arrest Call, police captain Dan Nail said basically police were just waiting for DNA technology to catch up to them. Then the new police chief, Vic Wall, said, quote, the case is very complicated and analysis of physical evidence and those technologies have changed over the years and assisted us in getting to where we are today, end quote. According to the reporting of Nick Viviani for WMTV-NBC15, by the time the Madison Police Department announced Call's arrest, they had conducted hundreds of interviews and processed countless pieces of evidence, and police listed the Dane County District Attorney's Office and the Wisconsin State Crime Lab as playing critical roles in the investigation as well. Interestingly, though, Call was actually already in prison at the time of his arrest. Uh, yeah, you heard that right. Remember that mile long rap sheet I was talking about? Well, he was found guilty of his seventh OWI in 2016, which is similar to a DUI or DWI in other states. It's called operating while intoxicated. And just to give you a sense of exactly who Call was, the dude also was a registered sex offender because he was convicted of second-degree sexual assault in 1993. And, quick side note, before he was officially arrested for Brittany's murder in 2020, he was set to be released from prison just a few days later. After announcing Call's arrest in 2020, Chief Wall said, quote, "...there's a little sense of relief. It's certainly a bit of a gratifying feeling that we've been able to do something to bring justice to Brittany and provide a little closure to her family." As I have occasion to look back on the case, look at a little bit about her and her photo, it's still very sad. There's nothing that we do can undo that, and it's really just a tragic case, end quote. Moving along, Call was ruled competent to stand trial in June of 2021. Then the following month in July, the asshole entered a not guilty plea, Y'all, this man tried to deny killing Brittany, and he even had the audacity to blame the 911 call center for her death, saying, well, if authorities had appropriately responded, Brittany would still be alive. Um, what? But yeah. According to an article in the Milwaukee State Journal, Call pointed police to false suspects, provided fake police sketches, denied involvement, and repeatedly changed his story, as we already know. So he basically wasted police resources and tried to constantly shift the blame to others. It was only after being faced with overwhelming DNA evidence, and I'm sure consultation of an attorney, when Call decided to change his tune and finally admit to the murder. On October 27th, 2022, Call pleaded guilty as part of a plea deal. According to a sentencing memo, here's what police and investigators believe actually happened on April 2, 2008. Call had been awake for eight days straight, strung out and high on meth and crack cocaine. That morning, Call had been making a loop around the neighborhood looking for money to buy drugs, which is why he forced his way into Brittany's apartment. Then while he was in her bathroom, he heard Brittany call police and he snapped. The sentencing memo states that Call later admitted to his mom in a conversation that he did kill Brittany, although he told her he had, quote-unquote, no clue as to why. So, as part of his plea deal, prosecutors said the state wouldn't contest any request from Call for extended supervision after serving 20 years in prison. According to the Wisconsin.gov website, extended supervision means, quote, that you have completed your prison sentence under the truth in sentencing law and now have a period of community supervision to complete. The judge determines the length of the extended supervision at the time of the sentencing, end quote. Now, the sheer thought of that plea deal and call being released in 20 years pretty much chills me to the bone. I mean, clearly the guy is a violent offender, so I'm not sure why the hell they would give him that deal anyway, but I guess that's why I'm not a DA or law enforcement. Anyway, thankfully it didn't matter because in a weird turn of events on January 2nd, 2023, so just this year at his sentencing hearing, Call, who was now 56 years old, asked the judge not to allow him to be released early. Instead, he asked the judge to begin his life sentence immediately due to health concerns. Apparently, he said he could receive better health care in federal prison than in the Dane County Jail. In return, he agreed to never be paroled or be given any extended supervision. At the hearing, Call's attorney spoke to the judge saying, quote, he owns it. He deserves it. He's telling you that this is the day he gets what's coming to him." During the hearing, Call did offer an apology to Brittany's family. He said, "...I would like to apologize to the whole Zimmerman family. I stopped her from having a family, giving her mother and father grandchildren. I feel horrible. I feel horrible. And I'm accepting the punishment I have coming." So the judge granted his wishes and sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In delivering his sentencing, Judge Chris Taylor said, quote, I do think, Mr. Call, that you do pose a threat to the public. If you can randomly and inexplicably kill an innocent college student in such a brutal way, you are capable of repeating these actions, and I can't allow that, end quote. Then the judge pointed out Call's extensive criminal history, including his seven OWIs, his violence against his own mother, and sexual assault, plus lots more, as well as his battles with drugs and alcohol. Judge Taylor said, quote, the victim you murdered was smart, perhaps going to go to medical school. By so many accounts, she was a bright presence that made people happy and brought a lot of joy, end quote. But Britney's parents, Kevin and Jean Zimmerman, said that although they were relieved that he will now remain in prison forever, they said they think his admission of guilt was self serving and they seriously doubted his sincerity. And they said, in a way, they are serving their own type of life sentence without their daughter. Jean said, There's never going to be closure for us. This is over, and we were thankful because this has been a nightmare for us for 14 and a half plus years, end quote. And over the 14 and a half years that Brittany's case remained unsolved, Brittany's parents kept her case alive as much as they possibly could. Kelly Meyerhofer for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reported that the Zimmermans vowed their daughter would never be forgotten. Before her case was solved, they put up billboards and offered interviews and in efforts to keep her case in the media. They also began hosting an annual dog walk called Pause for Brittany, which happened every Mother's Day in Marshfield, Wisconsin, where Brittany grew up. That event has raised over $60,000, which goes toward a scholarship in Brittany's honor. The scholarship is given to Marshfield High School students planning to attend the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I would like to wrap up this episode with some fond reflections from Brittany's father, Kevin, who said, quote, She would be a doctor right now. We would be proud of her, and we could go visit her on her animal farm and everything she wanted because she loved animals. That's what we wish that she could live her life the way she wanted to, end quote. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 57. Be sure to check out my social media, where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Chronicles on both Facebook and Instagram, or you can follow my personal account on Instagram, at Nicole K. Lynn. That's K-A-L-Y-N-N. Also, I said this last time, and I'm going to keep saying it for a while. I officially have over 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts, which thank you guys so much because that's what I wanted and y'all got it done. (laughs) But now I need more. Let's get to 500 or 1,000 or hell, even 10,000. Because like I've told y'all before, the reviews really do help more than you know. They let others know that this podcast is out there. So yeah, please review the podcast, share it with your podcast friends or someone you know who would love to be a campus crony. Let's just get the word out about Campus Crime Chronicles. Okay, well that's all for today, so bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by GRE Gassaway. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.